Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Kremlin File. Olga, we're ready for this week's uh, episode with an absolutely fantastic, fantastic guest. And his name is Lieutenant Colonel Jahara Matisik. But for us, he's Frankie, correct? Yep. yep. And he's a U.S. Air Force pilot that goes by the call sign. That's why he's got his call sign, Frankie. We got to ask him uh, maybe in a separate, uh, let's say, separately exactly why they called him Frankie. I know. But he has a PhD. Let's talk about him, though. He's got a PhD in political science from Northwestern University and is currently a military professor at the U.S. Naval College. Frankie has published over 90 articles on strategy, security, assistance, and information warfare. Frankie's 2022 book, Old and New Battle Spaces, identifies how adversaries attack the West in the information age and how everything is becoming weaponized as everyone becomes a combatant. And uh, Frankie was previously an associate professor of military and strategic studies at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Um, I'd also like to add that he is also a fellow at the Irregular War Initiative. And these are the topics that we're going to be covering today. Okay, precisely these. So, so um, much needed, especially with uh, all the information operations by our adversaries yeah definitely definitely and how we can combat them this is a really really important aspect of all of this so without any further ado let's welcome frankie hi frankie hi thanks for having me on the on the show hi frankie thank you for coming on uh i think we're just going to hop like jump into okay our conversation today and uh, with the first okay area that we would like to touch on, which is asymmetric warfare, okay, Frankie. So in recent years, basically, we've um, we've been seeing alarmingly an increase in, let's say, different armies using asymmetric warfare. Uh, here we're talking about Russia, China, and Iran. And aiming to destabilize our Western democracies and also our key institutions. And what it has brought about is the polarization of a lot of what is happening inside our own Western states. Uh, There's been a susceptibility, for example, to disinformation campaigns. And just recently, well, it's not just recently, we've, we've had this narrative for quite a long time um casting doubts on our own election integrity uh and basically just our whole democratic system seems to be in turmoil so one thing just so that we when we talk about other aspects you know of your expertise i wanted to get into first of all a little bit of what is asymmetric warfare 
just to clear it all up for whoever is listening. Well, so when you post the asymmetric question, uh, the problem is we've had this sort of proliferation of, of war terms where we all know what they mean, but we don't actually know what they mean. And the reason why I say this, there's these definitional issues because we obviously have gray zone warfare, hybrid warfare. There's the what we describe as the Russian approach, nonlinear warfare. Uh, you know, a, a bunch of Marines 30, 40 years ago has talked about like fourth and fifth generation warfare, uh, all these sort of different ways of describing conflict and competition. Uh, and I guess from my perspective, knowing kind of how you, you frame that question and your use of asymmetric warfare, I'm going to go back and to U.S. and NATO definitions because you can actually go online and be like, what is the definition of this stuff? And it turns out asymmetric warfare actually falls under the category of irregular warfare. So broadly speaking, uh, it's very commonplace. And I, I used to make this mistake like a few years ago before I started teaching at the Naval War College. Mm -hmm. I would just be like, oh, yeah, there's conventional warfare and there's unconventional warfare. Well, definitionally, if, if you go into the actual U.S. doctrine, uh, they actually say there's two types of warfare. They acknowledge nothing else. They say there's either conventional, also known as traditional warfare, and then there's just er regular warfare. And I really try to emphasize that er because that you know it's the IR, right? It's irregular warfare. So we talk about asymmetric warfare. Asymmetric is actually a tool uh, that falls within the irregular warfare toolbox, if you will. Now, what does this all mean? Well, when we talk about er regular warfare and Russia, China, uh, Iran, North Korea using asymmetric warfare against the West. An important thing to understand about the idea of using asymmetric warfare is it's a tool of the weak. So you should always start mm -hmm. with that initial assumption of weaker states, weaker countries, weaker non-state actors. They rely on asymmetric warfare because they are the weaker actor in, in a conflict. When you start with that assumption, you now go, oh, it's not all doom and gloom because they are engaging in asymmetric warfare against the West because they are having to use tools of the weak. Now, when you start from that assumption, it changes your frame of reference on how you compete and how you combat that. Because if it's all just doom and gloom, oh, they're doing asymmetric warfare against us. We can't do anything about it. You know, we only have, you know, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, of money like to spend on defensive and offensive operations. But, but what do we do? But because of, it is a weapon of the weak, they are constantly looking for opportunities to sort of uh, inject ideas, concepts, undermine uh, the way the West operates. Um, and so when you start from those assumptions, you start realizing, OK, so it's a weaker adversary that is looking for sort of opportunities uh, to exploit weaknesses on the seams in Western governments, militaries, and societies. Mm -hmm. When you sort of now encompass that whole sort of uh, definitional approach, now you go, okay, from a Western perspective, what can we do to defend ourselves and also to go on the offensive? Uh, so when I think about it from being on, on the defensive, it means you actually need to have robust uh, domestic reforms, transparency, anti-corruption laws. Uh, you can't allow political leaders to say, well, rules for thee, not for me, right? 
Um, and when you start kind of walking through these ideas and concepts, the way you really defeat a lot of these asymmetric tactics, techniques, and procedures is you actually don't need to militarily really do anything. You actually just have to make your own home country and society more resilient to resist these asymmetric operations, which for the most part, it's mainly information operations, propaganda, mm -hmm. and also just sort of the old Cold War TTPs of tactics, techniques, and procedures of what the Soviets did all the time, which is you look for a useful idiot and you exploit it to the nth degree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you brought up something. Can I do a follow-up question? Oh, because this is yeah. yeah. That's the government pays You've touched... big bucks. <laughs> You've touched on so many things that I'm sitting here going, okay, my brain is starting to to fry a little bit. Um <laughs> these these methods and tactics, we're talking about asymmetric. Do you consider them to be at the same level as let's say uh, weapons, uh, kinetic weapons or not? Uh, that is another fantastic question that my my students at Naval War College again also ask all the time. Uh, you see, and this is and this is where I have to put on the, like my philosophy hat and be like, war is a social construct. It only matters if you think it matters. Uh, all right, yeah, no. So, does this have an impact? Is it a, you know is it having a real effect? I mean, in one sense, I'd say no because in most cases, no one actually dies, right? But if you get back to the core ideas of why do you engage in, in warfare, um, uh, statecraft, and other sort of, you know, uses of the instruments of national power. So that's the dime, if mm -hmm. you haven't heard that, the dime, diplomatic, information, military, and economic, right? Mm -hmm. If you start from the core ideas of why do you wield these instruments of national power, it's about achieving your own national interest. Mm -hmm. usually at the expense of someone else. So if you're able to easily achieve an objective, such as sway the elections in the U.S. in 2016 or mm -hmm. cause the United Kingdom to Brexit and leave the EU, if you're able to achieve this without having to kill anybody, hmm. you're actually, you're doing what I would call sort of like the best form of warfare, which is, essentially attacking another country but doing it in a way that they are unable to militarily respond to you mm. and i think that's the crux of this whole issue is that we don't have an article five idea or notion or concept of oh when another country attacks us with information warfare we're allowed to like attack them back right with like a new you know with like b-52s and airstrikes oh no 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 you just you'd have to kind of just like finger wag them in public and you know give like hmm. press briefings on this is the amount of times that the chinese and russian hackers have attacked you know u.s infrastructure this is the amount of times that we're sure that they're on on social media stoking societal divisions now to that end point i can say and this is all open source um i was in lithuania uh a few months before the war kicked off in ukraine uh, and a couple of their STRATCOM officials, so STRATCOM mm. is strategic communication, and again, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you can just go to, NATO has a center of excellence dedicated to STRATCOM. Uh, it's based in, in Latvia, but um, a couple of, of STRATCOM officials told me uh, that the Russians were spending about $3 billion uh, comparative mm. purchasing 
parody on essentially cyber and information warfare operations against the West. And so what did that mean to like a little country like Lithuania? Well, they told me that they averaged about 400 or so attacks from Russia. And this was before like the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and then because we're on this point, uh, China, from what we can tell, employs about, uh, I think I think last I heard, they, pl- they employ at least 3 million people in these activities of cyber uh, hacking operations and also information warfare. That is much, much more than the 30,000 or so American people we employ in the DOD and in government to attack and also counter the separate operations. So in these, ca- in the, in these two cases, two countries are doing a lot of attacking and the U.S. does not really necessarily respond robustly in kind. Um, and the reason why I just want to give you that number about the Lithuanians were saying they were getting about 400 attacks from the Russians was, if you remember, back in the summer of 21, before the invasion of Ukraine, Lithuania made the decision, we're going to stand up against Beijing. Uh, and they decided to pull out of a EU trade deal, and they essentially de facto recognized Taiwan. Mm-hmm. They told me that they were averaging about five or ten attacks from China prior to that announcement. Within a month of them making that announcement, they were now getting about 100 attacks a month coming from mm-hmm. China, from their information and uh, uh, cyberware, essentially attacking their infrastructure, but also attacking like their society. Wow. Can I just add something to that? Because I remember that and I remember monitoring um, uh, Russia's operations on their end. I mean, they literally had uh like military uh or former military personnel on their talk shows um basically uh showing how they were going to invade lithuania and saying oh well we're going to give this part to china and this part we're going to keep for Mm -hmm. ourselves so it just shows you even like the convergence of china and russia in certain operations um and with obviously iran um uh in certain operations and how they pretty much you know cover for each other even though china and russia historically will never trust each other they don't you know they they don't trust each other as far as they could throw each other but um when it comes to go against the west they will you know come together i mean it's it's very interesting on that point Mm. Well, and that's actually like a great example of of, of of even like the asymmetric uh shaping operations was if again it, it it feels like so long ago, but like in the months before uh the invasion of Ukraine, um Russia, and this was going about again hanging up with like the Lithuanian Stratcom officials, they actually showed me all the open source the ways that the Russians were openly advertising in African countries and Middle Eastern countries, telling people, hey, do you want to get to the EU and get refugee uh, right. status? We right. will pay for your flight to uh, to Belarus, and we will bus you into an EU country. So if you remember, in those uh, summer months of 21, mm-hmm. you had thousands and thousands of people on the borders of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and it was a completely a fabricated attempt to create a a refugee crisis crisis by the Russians. And like the crazy thing, like the Lithuanians even showed me like, here's the flight info of, of that, of that yeah. flight coming from like, from the DRC to Syria and Syria uh, up to the capital of, of, of Belarus. And they're just transferring people that they want to, I mean, they were basically weaponizing 
refugees, which is just a terrible thing to do, right? You you, you get them on an airplane for free and, and promise them that will get you to the EU. And then you basically, that sentiment hordes against the borders of, of the Baltic states, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. that's a great example of like, holy crap, they're willing to weaponize people that are trying to escape, you know, really tough places in Africa and the Middle East. Yeah. Can I, I add to that? Time. Yeah. <laughs> Since I was monitoring that operation too, and I actually wrote about it. Um, so yes, uh Lukashenko and Putin had put together a plan in May of 2021, right before the Biden Putin summit. Um, mm-hmm. because in the uh winter of uh 2021, Russia started as you know, moving all their heavy equipment and um uh soldiers onto Ukraine's uh borders, and then um you know, in exchange for a summit, they said, oh, okay, we'll pull the borders. Now, your military, you know how quick it is to move around troops, but all the heavy equipment stayed there. But that May of 2021, Lukashenko and Putin started um, devised this plan, and um, we were monitoring it from the uh, Syrian point and from Iraqi point, where they were selling these um, basically guaranteed, yeah, to (laughs) Germany in order. But just to add to what you said, so you have the migrants that uh, uh, Lukashenko was flying in in uh, plane loads and then putting them on a bus and transporting them to the border. And then right on the other side, you had the Russians running the biggest disinformation operation and division campaign inside of Poland to yeah. try to, uh, you know, cause tensions inside of Poland amongst their own people and the government, because then you had some people who were extremely, you know, uh, thought the government was taking too harsh of measures on the border. Not, you know, even the media didn't realize this was weaponized migration. They were like, oh, look at this poor refugee crisis. I feel bad for the refugees. But this was an attack. I mean, like that needs to be made very clear. Well, and and, yeah. and, and what you're actually recognizing there, that is the reason why it is really difficult from like a journalistic and even like societal perspective to understand the way these activities and actions are taking place is because at the tactical level, yes, you feel bad for these individuals, these people right. Right. that were basically weaponized as migrants as a part of a, a grand strategy by, you know, uh, by the Russians in Belarus. But from a strategic perspective, unfortunately, these people are just pawns of a grander plan that the Russians had put together as a part of like the shaping operation of Eastern Europe to basically, I guess at this point now, mm-hmm. hindsight, distracting the you know nato Mm and the eu with Mm -hmm. a refugee crisis on the eastern borders while they're preparing to invade like ukraine um and they moved in also on top of it they smuggled in a lot of uh terrorist cells which was exposed by belarusian opposition um with the mm, training grounds mm. and everything because they were also training and planning on sending them through the borders into europe to set off terrorist attacks to cause more destabilization you know and and in this context you know and i think this is actually a good segue to the problem is you know is all this new per se uh in terms Mm -hmm. of, of of warfare and competition and conflict and in one sense i would say no because uh during the cold war uh the soviet union did lots of of weird and nasty things like this but 
I would argue in many cases, it was just because they wanted to make a country into a communist country, right? What they did in Italy, uh, things like that. But I think by about the 1980s, they realized that they weren't able, like they weren't able to um, have a a viable communist political party in the U.S., Germany, Italy, etc. So uh, they went to doing uh, something I coined as schismogenesis. So basically, it means uh, creating divisions in another society. So the 1980s, what do the Russians do? Oh, let's fund like the, like the Green Party in Germany and make them very mm. anti-nuclear because we're going to play the long game, which is if we can get the Germans yeah. to get rid of all their nuclear power, they will be addicted to Russian petroleum, which then basically makes makes them a de facto proxy of, of Russian interests because Germany, you know, is the economic industry powerhouse mm-hmm. of Europe. So if we get them hooked on on Russian oil and natural gas, they will eventually always have to kowtow what we want to do in terms of a foreign policy because their economy is so dependent on cheap Russian oil and natural gas. Yeah, I think most people looking at all of this uh, don't think in the long term, right? Yeah, and even and now the they're not thinking in the long. This is and that's yeah. The I mean, we disconnect to strategic thinking is you're just in the moment and you see these little these little fires little going pieces. on. It's like, well, are these fires going to add up to, to a really big payoff to an adversary? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We can move on. Go ahead, Olga. So now, um, knowing all this, I mean, for me, obviously, these are sadly. Oh, at least on one side, my countries. I mean, this is nothing new. Uh, Russia's, uh, you know, disinformation operations and brainwashing and mind control and everything. I mean, goes past the the Tsars. You know, this is something they've always uh, deployed. Even like Akhrana had an incredible uh, 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 counterintelligence division. And then as it moved into KGB, eventually um, they use the same tactics. And now, obviously, they're 10 times more effective because of the fact that uh, with technology, because I remember speaking and interviewing um uh, uh, what's his name? Kalugin, who was the former um, spy master who headed counterintelligence operations for KGB in the U.S. And he used to run operations here. He was happy if they could place an ad in a newspaper where 10 people read it, whereas now they can blast it across social media and it gets to billions in, in uh, yep. seconds. So now with all of this known with the Cold War playbook, What in the heck happened? Because we had 2008. uh, Well, yeah, let's start 2007. We had the Estonian cyber attacks, the first um, uh, nation state actor uh, to attack another actor and paralyze their society and their government and their banking and everything. 2008, we have invasion of Georgia. Then we get to 2000. Uh, 14, the illegal annexation of Crimea and um, occupation of Donbass. Then 2015, we have them uh, basically decimating Syria and assisting Assad with disinformation operations while he was gassing his own people. And then we had obviously every election interference, not to mention Russians assassinating their own um, dissidents using polonium and uh, all kinds of Novichok, uh, polonium and um, just, you know, plain uh, shooting them or throwing them out windows. Where was the West? Why are we playing catch up right now? So I think a lot of that has to do. Part of it is uh, 
the U.S. first off was obviously still very distracted with the wars uh, in the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan, and other counterterrorism operations across Africa. I think that was a pretty big distraction. Um, uh, secondly, I think, uh, and, and this is something that I, I actually kind of speak to in my book, Old and New Battle Spaces, uh, is the fact that we really have been unable to really get past sort of our industrial age institutions and ways of using instruments of national power, especially our military. And the reason why I say that is uh, most Western countries still have an industrial age mindset in the way they do business, the way they conduct warfare. It's these, you know, it's these old sort of organizational uh, theories and concepts from the early 1900s on how to run an organization, how to run a bureaucracy, how to do certain things. And the problem is our economies are all essentially information age, digital hyper connectivity, um, instant communications. So in one sense, it's like you're, you're basically, you're, you're trying to go after a bunch of ants with a big, dumb lumbering elephant. It's the wrong tool, right? It's, it's kind of like having like, like the golden plated, a sledgehammer just to put, you know, a couple nails in a house. You're probably going to break more things than you're actually going to fix and repair and build right unless you're but, wagner <laughs> yeah <laughs> then, then. and and so i think in many ways um and i think it's interesting that we mentioned 2007 to 2014 because 2007 is the first year of the smartphone think about that right first year mm -hmm. of the smartphone uh 2000 and apparently about 120 cell mm -hmm. uh smartphones were sold in 2007 but think about this in terms of economies of scale and impact this has in the world from 2007 to 2014 cell phone sales basically kept going up right by 2014 it was about 1.2 billion phones were sold in that year so think about that in seven years you basically had a 10 times increase in the number of smartphones being sold and and the reason why really like, and you may be thinking like well why is 2014 kind of important if you look at at the data on on smartphone sales that's essentially where they peaked and plateaued so i would argue you basically had mass uptake of a of a device that allowed you to have sort of access to all the information in the world to be able to do whatever you want to talk to whoever you want uh, and i think that really changed the way the warfare was conducted by states that were willing to uh use that technology immediately and integrate it into the way they fought and also for non-state actors and so you know when we wonder like well what happened in 2014 with isis and and ukraine i think these are sort of uh think about this as, as, as sort of um entrepreneurs who managed to um mm. essentially use a new technology in a way that no one really thought about that and i perfectly david kilcullen actually wrote about this uh mm. talking about how in 2014 2015 with the use of smartphones and tablets insurgents were basically able to uh, direct artillery and mortar fire as expertly as a, you know, mm. as like a U.S. trained unit because they now had the technology to immediately and precisely put like the fires where they wanted. And so when you think about it in those terms, that had, had a dramatic impact on sort of the information environment globally, the way people thought, interact with each other and the fact that no one really ever thought like, oh, the person I'm talking to in this, you know, a social media debate could actually just be a uh, a person from Beijing or Moscow or a person that does live in the West, but is being paid by Beijing and Moscow mm -hmm, to just, mm -hmm. you know, 
stoke um, divisions, create new divisions. Uh, it was actually eventually I discovered that, you know, because of the Brexit thing that the Russians mm-hmm. were like, well, if Brexit worked, let's see if we can get California and Texas to do right. a similar thing. So the Cal exit and the Texas mm-hmm. were also pushed by the Russians because they're like, we just wanted to weaken countries that are anti-Russian. And I wouldn't really even say the West is anti-Russia per se, but I think eventually it came to a, a breaking point of like, you know, we have a, a you know, an international system that is bound by rules, laws, norms, mm-hmm. uh, and various ways to interact and cooperate. And it's very obvious that the Russians decided those rules don't apply to us anymore. And on the margins, we're going to increasingly test what can we get away with. And so when you hear about like hybrid and gray zone, I I, I think when people use those terms, what I think they're, what they're trying to allude to is how one country can attack you and do certain things below the threshold of conflict and or below the threshold of what they perceive you willing to respond and react to in kind. And that's, and that to me, that's, that, that is almost like, like the genius of any sort of, I mean, you don't have to call it it hybrid or gray zone. It's just really smart statecraft in the way you, Mm-hmm. wield instruments of power is can you achieve your interest and degrade another country without them attacking you back or doing mm-hmm. anything enough to actually punish you right because i mean anyway, competition conflict this is all about uh costs risks rewards and if you can engage in these these relatively cheap activities right like because we think about like uh how much is like like a fifth generation a fighter cost, right? It's about eighty million dollars, right? You know, like F twenty twos, F thirty fives. Like you can, all, you really can't use those in a way that were if you just paid, you know, eighty million dollars to like a troll factory, you can probably achieve greater effects than you can with employing uh, a kinetic munition in an, you know, against another country. And oh, by the way, if you do something like that, we all kind of think like, okay, that country can militarily like respond to you, but if you employ $80 million, not in a tank or in a airplane and you hire people to basically just, you know, just pinprick attack, you know, a, a certain a society, make them think that, that their democracy is corrupt, make them think that um, you, you want to have a strong man in charge of your country. Uh, mm. And, you know, you don't want to be a part of the EU or, or NATO because it's very, it's very, you know, feminine or it, it emasculates your people and your country and your history and your culture and uh you know or or the u.s is actually going to be making all the decisions for you right or you, you or you play on that trip of like brussels actually makes all of your decisions for you so why are you part of the eu right you you start pulling on these little threads and you try to either create these imaginary uh conflicts and divisions or you try to stoke them and inflame them. And, and so it becomes a, a, a really dangerous um, situation in a lot of countries that don't have the the robust digital resilience and digital resistance to this. And there's really about two countries, in my opinion, that do a fantastic job of that. It's essentially Estonia, uh, mm-hmm. Finland, and Sweden to a lesser extent. Those three countries mm-hmm. over the last couple of decades have invested heavily in you know educating their society of, hey, before you click or share or read something or think that's important, think where is that source from? Does that person right. have your best interest in your country in mind? Or are they trying to create an issue that weakens your country relative to Russia or China, et cetera? Yeah. 
who doesn't want a, a, a strong orange uh, person with a bronzer, <laughs> 10 <laughs> shades darker as their leader? I'm so confused. Um, a few, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A, few, uh, a few points I wanted to make on what you touched on. It's interesting because I never looked at it from a technology point of view. And this is fascinating mm. because I can tell you from the Russian side, the biggest thing that spooked Russia Really, and the weakest besides now that Putin was ever was during 2011 and when he saw the Arab uh, Spring sweeping across the Middle East and how it was being organized via social media and the protests and then the protests that poured into Russia. And this is something that probably Russia did immediately make it a priority to make sure that they not only combat and harden their own um uh internet and 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 uh operations you know that they perceive coming from outside although they don't care i mean no one yeah. cares um to to do anything to them but um but also to use it as a weapon uh to disrupt societies and then going back to what you said with military under the threshold i've spoken to several you know former kgb um colonels and various positions and they were trained the best intelligence operations were always ones that uh, fell right underneath the threshold of criminality so yep. it is absolutely the mm -hmm. same exact you know thing whether it's military or intelligence same exact thing and as far as you know the last point i wanted to make um oh, um God. the west never wanted to attack um you know, Russia, and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, what many in the West fail to understand is that they never got over it. They, for some reason, resent uh, Europe, mm. United States, and mm. the international community, and really, for them, it was the biggest humiliation. And they have, I mean, while we were trying to, you know, teach democracy and whatnot, they were plotting how they were going to take revenge mm -hmm. and collapse our countries. And this is something whenever you speak to anyone, this is one of the biggest points. Any regular person inside of Russia, their biggest point is uh, the humiliation that the collapse of the Soviet Union caused. And that's oh, where a lot of people don't understand that this is where this all stems from. Well, but I think the 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 issue after that is the fact that like Russia just failed to democratize. Yeah. Like it seemed like they tried hard in the nineties and they just, it just kind of stalled out and, and, and gangsterism and, and mafias and sort of uh, previous strongmen from the, the old Soviet regime basically said, okay, we'll play by the rules, you know, but by, by the rules of democracy to get in charge and then we're going to lock in our gains and then we're going to use the the whole like, oh, the Soviets were, you know, the, the Russian Empire was humiliated by the way. You know, basically at that point, it's like you get in charge and then you say, oh, we can't be a democracy anymore because uh, the West was actually humiliating us and taking advantage of our mm. weakness. And so, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example um, is it's pretty common in 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 Russian circles among the military for them to say well the west actually were the first ones to do hybrid warfare against us with your uh ngos and your democracy and mm. and promotion of human rights and other things like that so it's interesting when you have a little bit of a, what, what has been coined strategic empathy 
you go, wow, I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess I see your point. But then that's also kind of delusional because it's like, well, if you're given two choices between human rights and democracy versus strongman authoritarianism, you should want to have the, the human rights and, you know, economic freedoms than a, good thing. a government that just tells you what to do. Right. So the only way the, the like, like the new Russia has been able to maintain that is they have to then engage in sort of these narratives of well, our country was actually better and stronger when we had, you know, a strong man in charge of, of the Russian empire, you know, you know, under the Soviet Union, right? These ideas that, well, we are actually the ones who defeated the Nazis. We did all the, you know, all the bleeding and dying in World War II. In fact, the West owes us because, you know, well, I think they lost, or I think they think they claim they lost what, like 30 or 60 million people in, in World War II. Granted, Stalin did most of that to his own people. Yeah. But never mind that, of course, obviously, right? And it's not ethnic little... Russians either because they always yeah. forget. Yeah. To That's mention right. the fact that it was Ukrainians and Belarusians and mm -hmm. frankly, every country that they colonized who died, you know, not yeah. just uh, the ethnic Russians. So, I mean, it's a combination uh, of who died. Go ahead. Sorry. But if you're yeah. looking for like a, 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 a earlier a turning point, like for Russia, in, in my research. Um, so the Baltics joined NATO in 2004. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, a year later, Moscow sets up this thing called the BMA, Baltic Media Alliance in London, to purposefully make sure that the people in the Baltics still have access to Russian media and information. I think that's that that rarely ever gets talked about. And I think that's actually an interesting turning point hmm. in where, as far as I can tell, and, and maybe other things happened before that. But to me, when I came across that little bit of information, I was like, oh, that's interesting that that Russia felt so strongly about the people of the Baltics that they had to create this thing called the Baltic Media Alliance, base it in hmm. London so that they can push Russian stories and narratives on the people of the Baltics to remind them why, you know, you need to keep your Russian, you know, like your Russian language heritage that was imposed on you, right? And I'm so sorry, Mo. I just have to add to that, being a dissident in this country, and I can tell you it started way before then. And, um, uh, I mean, I don't ever remember the, you know, community ever, like, allowing russians to fully assimilate and so we were part of the you know 70s wave of refugees who came in and even at the time speaking with kalugan he said that basically uh they allowed uh you know they mixed the, the real jewish refugees out mm -hmm. with kremlin operatives and then um they would come and activate them a few years later after they assimilated in the 80s on brighton beach in new york they would come and say oh hey you remember you this and this and this and basically you know put them to work to work against the interest of america but then even after the collapse of the soviet union I mean, they have, you know, within, it was under the KGB director, now it's under SVR, and they had a similar system before that, which basically their sole job is to make sure that Russians globally do not assimilate into the countries and societies that they work. And it's very interesting because then on the other side, Ukrainian, you know, there they want you to assimilate. They want you to be part of the West. Like, you know, there's no pull to make sure that you fully don't, you know, become an American. Right. And well, it's it's a, just a fascinating dynamic in the Russian communities um, across America. 
well, I think it's I think it's interesting interesting that you mentioned the the assimilate because I would think now that the Chinese playbook is they want their immigrants in the West to actually assimilate, but they want you to realize your allegiance is still back to the home country. Home. And how do they keep that allegiance in check? Uh, they make sure you, your the rest of your family can't leave mainland China because they're essentially held in a sort of um, de facto hostage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> type of limbo where they can threaten you as you know as an american citizen but you have chinese relatives in 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 your home country with you need to get this information if you want to keep your family safe and protected and i think that's that that actually leads me to like the broader idea concept that i've been talking about is that um these authoritarian countries have basically taken the gloves off in the sense that anything and everything will be weaponized and anything will be a combatant, whether you want to be a combatant or not. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, takes me back to the book idea, which is that's the new battle space. Everything's getting weaponized. Anyone and everyone is a combatant, whether or not you like it. The only, I guess you could say the only way you can avoid that is you can go live in the Appalachias of, uh, of West yeah. Virginia and have no access to electronics or the Internet. Because yeah. if you're on the Internet, you are right now a combatant. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because... Yeah. A foreign country can and will target you through various influence uh, influence operations, and that's what you know. I, I guess you could say a thing I always I always tell my students when I taught the Air Force Academy and now teaching the Naval War College on the last day of class, which is every day you have a choice to be a participant in information warfare. What does that mean? It means if you have any access to the internet or social media, your decision to share, like, or not share or like certain things you see is making you a part of information warfare and global competition between the authoritarian countries of the world and the democratic West that is trying to, again, maintain the rules, the laws, and and human rights. And whether you like it or not, you are now participating in this information warfare. And that is something that I think we should probably be teaching in every single Western uh, country that at a young age, you are a part of this information warfare and struggle. And I know historians hate, you know, us political scientists saying Cold War 2.0. It really is. It's just not communist anymore. It's a decision between do you want to have a live in the democratic West where you have, you know, you know, laws, institutions, um, human rights, access to freedom, or you want to live in authoritarian countries that take away your freedoms in, you know, to protect you better, right? Um Mm-hmm. And you have to make that choice. And I don't think we're having that tough conversation. And I mean, yeah. uh, I think we need to be, we, we need to basically be starting when, like when you're five years old and you have access to an iPad and a tablet as a little kid, Hey, there's a chance that you may be, that your kid may be watching a YouTube channel that is trying to influence your kid into thinking less Western and maybe more pro Moscow, pro Beijing, uh, pro Tehran. And it doesn't have to be, overt and over the top, you know, because that's that's what I, when I look back to a lot of the Cold War propaganda, it's very sort of cheesy and cliche. Now, I think as a technology, everything's been refined. You can test mm. it out so easily and quickly and be like, oh, this individual actually, you know, like we tracked that they actually looked at this content a second or two longer than this content. So we should promote this kind of content, you know, and, and that's, and I think that's the danger of all this technology is the fact we, you know, wh- whoever uses technology like this technology first and weaponizes it and uses mm-hmm. and uses it for offensive operations. Th- that is, that is the first movers advantage. That is the entrepreneurs of war and violence who get a first movers advantage. And you look back through history, whoever uses this new technology first in, in warfare 
gets an initial advantage until other countries go, oh, we should probably adapt and evolve and develop countermeasures so we, they don't exploit us again, right? Yeah, yeah. Frankie, what you've been talking about up until now and on all of the, the concepts, I think you wrote a piece, I think, I know you wrote a piece on great deterrence, great wars and great deterrence. <clears throat> Excuse me, is this what we've been talking about, trying to understand it all, or is it a different concept? Can you I mean, no, it, it? it actually, it kind of is. Like when I wrote that paper, uh, when I wrote that, oh man, I wrote that in a class in 2016, and then I spent a year or two like trying to make it into an article, which it eventually did. What I was trying to work through, because back in 2017, 2016, we didn't have a full idea of what gray zone warfare meant, other than it is an adversary trying to attack you and undermine you without you responding. And so when I thought through gray zone deterrence, or yeah, gray deterrence, if you will, um, I thought through it of like, okay, if that's their approach to us, how do we then deter them from even attempting to test our, you mm -hmm. know, our our threshold? And so it was sort of yeah. walking through, can you do the cost-benefit analysis? Can you actually punish adversaries or at least create the perception that you will actually be punished um, for engaging this action? Because that's the thing that people don't understand about the difference between deterrence and compellence is deterrence is you make it very clear you have a big stick and if you do this, you will get hit with that stick. Well, the problem is when that adversary does something and you don't hit them with the stick, mm -hmm. they go, oh, I can get away with stuff. And then they keep kind of pushing that line in line further. And at a certain point, when you finally do respond of like, all right, you've changed the status quo too much. I'm going to hit you with that big stick. That's now compellence. The problem is compellence is very difficult to do because now you've spent all this time telling them I'm going to hit you with this big stick. And now you hit them with it and they go, oh, that wasn't that painful. And then you're like, crap, now I have to hit you even harder or get more friends to hit you with this big stick to convince you to go back to the original status quo where you believed I was going to hit you with this big stick. And 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 that, I think, is, you know, that's the fundamental issue of, of gray zone deterrence is once the levy breaks and you finally hit them back, they go, oh, that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was. So it's like, oh, not only did deterrence fail, now compellence has failed because you from a, hmm. you know, I guess you say a pro-Western perspective, you don't actually want to really engage in a big fight that an adversary thought you might be willing uh, to actually engage in. And oh, by the way, if you're Beijing or Moscow, you're actually trying to undermine that society into believing fighting is not worth fighting. So I feel like every other week there's an article that comes out in some, hmm. you know, outlet in a Western capital that says, you know, you know, should Americans really die for Taiwan? Should Americans really die for Ukraine? Should Germans worry about the invasion of Taiwan? Is it even, does it even matter? You know, like, you know, mm -hmm. and I guarantee you, some of those people that read those articles probably do actually generally believe that. But there has to be some of these people that are getting paid by the Russia and Moscow mm -hmm. being said, here's the thousand bucks. I would love for you to write an article saying that no American or European should die for anybody in the Baltics or in the Ukraine. Yeah. Right. Because you just need to have these little slow drip conversations. They're playing within the rules of the game. Right. Right. Free press, freedom of thought. But if you start injecting sort of these these little mini viruses where people would go like, oh, yeah, I never thought about like Article five and having to die for people in the Baltics because I don't know where the Baltics is. So, yeah, I, I, I'm going to 
I'm going to call, you know, my, my person in parliament or in Congress and tell them, yeah, I don't want to die for people in Taiwan or in the Baltics or in Ukraine. Yeah. In fact, why are we even giving them money? Like, I don't see you know what I mean. Like th these are these little things that are going on every day. Uh, and we, this is the tough thing again, information age, um, bureaucracies and militaries and governments in the West. We just really haven't got to the point of being adept enough to actually counter that. And oh, by the way, this is all complicated by the fact that there are certain things that Western democracies do not and should not do on America on on you know on American and European soil in terms of curtailing free speech. And that's why I always go back to transparency, promoting ideas of pro-democracy, why it matters, why it's important, and you know, uh, it's the values, right? But if you're not having that conversation with your domestic audience. Uh, it get it gets lost in in the chaos that the Chinese and Russians are basically uh, creating in our societies through a social media uh, warfare and such. Can I uh, name and shame someone or no? No, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> um, just to add to everything that you have said, um, there's also another way because, you know, I'm guilty of it myself because I just have zero patience and I accuse, you know, everyone being on the Kremlin's payroll, which I mean, there's definitely some financial incentives on many cases. But what a lot of people don't understand, for instance, is, you know, how Russia brings people um, from Western countries inside of Russia for various events and, you know, conferences and whatnot. Now, um, we have someone, for instance, Samuel Sharap, who works for Rand Corporation, who basically you always see taking a pro-Kremlin point of view. And I remember the first few articles he wrote, I got bombarded with phone calls. They're like, oh, my God, Olga, is he getting paid like this and that? And I'm like, well, do I think Russia right now is sending him money? No. But Russia also has another tactic, which the Soviets did. And that is to bring you there and to mm -hmm. shape your reality. So yeah. basically, they don't have to pay you. They, all they have to do is bring you there and, you know, show you. I mean, Moscow and St. Petersburg, they designed as the crown jewel. Meanwhile, you step, you know, <laughs> meters away and, and uh, the neighborhoods get shittier and shittier and shittier. The but, but, I mean, they were basically out. paying you. It's a five star yeah. wine and dine <clears throat> and, and maybe a. Uh, a massage therapist is waiting in your room yeah. after after a long yeah. day of yeah. speaking and eating and VIP tickets at yeah. the opera. You need a, la a late night massage. You didn't know it was coming that night. You know, <laughs> and, and, don't, and like, don't mind the <laughs> don't mind the photographers in the yeah, wall in the in the <laughs> wall on the other side. Yeah. Like, don't mind yeah. that. That's yeah, we were talking beer. about. Yeah, no, we but, were talking about this. But yeah. but they that's not a financial payment where the person leaves Moscow and they don't see, and even though it is, it does cost money to do this, but it wasn't a financial transaction where two parties took uh you know agreed to this financial transaction. They can go back and say, Why? I don't see anything. What is wrong? Why are they so bad? And the Soviets did this because I mean Everyone knows that there were breadlines. People died in the Soviet Union. The KGB was the most brutal organization on the planet. But at the same time, you know, uh, towards the late 80s, 
uh, Russia, well, Moscow would bring in, um, you know, Westerners and say, what food shortage? Look, look at this beautiful store stocked with sausages and every kind of thing that you have. We don't have any food shortages, but these stores were crafted for these people, you know, yeah. so they were brought to that particular store where it's like, well, you know, maybe the West is lying. Maybe it is propaganda that people are starving. Well, and that's that's the, that's the reason why it's it's awesome to watch the um the Seth Rogen and, and James Franco movie what was it uh, the dictator, right? Cause it's all about, mm-hmm. about the North Korea thing. Everything you're describing is exactly what happens in that movie. Right. <laughs> they, they whine and dine you. They were like, see everything that everything your capital, you know, your Western capital tells you about North Korea is all a lie. See how like, look at the fat kid. He's eating very well. Right. Right. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, don't look there's... that way where the tiger is eating one of the military people because he did he forgot to co- fulfill an order successfully. Yeah. <laughs> don't yeah, look that way. Yeah. That <laughs> look the other way. Actually, there's a great article in I think it's The Guardian, written by the deceased, um, killed uh Victoria Molina about this and how she had gone to um to Moscow on a trip. And she knew that they this is what they were doing. So she no pulled, she said no. They they tried to do a, an interview with her and uh she told it like it was. She understood that they were trying to, you know, um show her this make-believe world, so on and so forth, and she just didn't buy it. Being Ukrainian, she just said, Okay, that's it. Thanks for the vacation. I, st- I still can't believe you she's know? that. I know, I know. Speaking of Ukraine. Um, Frankie, we wanted your assessment, okay, on the counteroffensive now. And if there are weapons, there's a lot of talk about the F-16s, about uh, long-range missiles that are missing, um, that have not been yet uh, delivered to Ukraine, given to Ukraine. Um, We wanted your assessment on it. I mean, this this is the tough sort of grand, you know, grander problem of cold war thinking and the way we think about deterrence and also just escalation management in terms of uh broader strategic thinking about the war which is from a west perspective uh it is that slow sort of escalation of okay we give the ukrainians xyz weapons you know and other munitions and platforms uh how does russia respond and then you, I guess you wait for the Russia to do an awful thing like, you know, blowing up the cafe yeah. yesterday, killing 50 people. And I think they they destroyed a part of Kharkiv. I'm assuming also 50 other people yeah. are also dead. And then it's like, okay, now we can start giving the, the Ukrainians these weapons and munitions that we thought were an imaginary mm-hmm. red line with the Russians. And so we're constantly kind of playing this this uh, staircasing. And it's and and broadly speaking, you know, it's an awful thing that we have to we have to play that way. But unfortunately, Russia is also a nuclear armed power. And that's that is always the like the crux of the issue, uh, which is Western governments are trying to avoid nuclear war. Putin knows that. And oh, by the way, Putin, of course, is now saying here's an opportunity to maybe um, try to sow more divisions in Western democracies uh, in Europe and in North America uh by seeing if maybe okay two years into the war almost uh can we find a way to slow down uh the western aid and you know and money and Mm -hmm. munitions and weapons Mm -hmm. to ukraine so that maybe we can actually grind it out to an actual stalemate uh where it just becomes like a war of attrition and ukraine can't do anymore when it comes to like the long range the long range munitions f-16s 
I mean, it's going to help. I mean, with the Ukrainian Air Force just running out of airplanes, F-16s are not going to be like a magical uh, a solution like to battlefield woes because they're not even getting the best F-16s. They're not getting the best the missiles on them, the best software for them. So I look at them as just sort of, it's an upgrade from a MiG-29 or an Su-24. Uh, but, I mean, it's going to allow them like to fly more missions at least. Uh, but it sounds like what the Ukrainians need still a lot of mm-hmm. is a lot of air defense capabilities. Uh, and they obviously need... Um, you know, tanks, APCs, things like that to, you know, keep pushing through uh, all these, you know, defensive fortifications because the Russians have dug in and they build multiple layers of fortifications to make this as difficult and painful on the Ukrainians as possible. And so um, the best thing we can do is keep giving the Ukrainians the things they need. And when they ask for more, we, you know, we look at the escalation logic of the war and you get more stuff. Exactly. Here it is. Wait, you mean disrupting aid, like closing our Congress? Yeah. <laughs> Shutting down Congress oh, by God. a few uh, pro-Kremlin shows who apparently, oh, my God, can I just make one comment? Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, with her picture of Code Pink, uh, which is one oh. of the uh, you you alluded to earlier, you know, these, oh, we want peace on the everywhere. Meanwhile, it's another intelligence operation foreign but anyway they um worship china and um it's interesting that marjorie taylor green who aligned you know who is so china 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 had no issues coming together with them uh and taking pictures because they do not want aid to ukraine to continue so that's uh the hypocrisy there um what one last question okay Okay. One last wrap it up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. One last question. So um we did a lot of uh we discussed a lot on this um episode Russia's very powerful information warfare operations and whatnot. We know that Russia wants to break support for Ukraine and we see it being successful. I mean, poll numbers are slowly, you know, sliding down with the amount of people who are still like send Ukraine everything, send them aid. We have to stay with them as long as um we yeah. need to. Now, what can we do to convince Americans and Europeans that we're not simply just doing it for Ukraine? But this is for European security. And should Ukraine fall, that Russia is going to be rolling tanks in Lithuania or Latvia or Moldova, and that, you know, it will escalate across Europe where U.S. soldiers will then have to physically get involved. No, I mean, that's I think that's the most important point is, uh, I mean, first off, uh, at least one Russian elite propagandist has already basically said, and I think this was right before the war kicked off, which Mm -hmm. is. Uh, um, it is a law of physics that Russia will expand again, right? So they've already told themselves that we're a Russian empire. We're, we're getting back to the, you know, we're getting back to what we did, which is conquest. Um, right. And you can't do anything about it. It's a natural law of physics, right? Like, how do you argue with someone saying, well, it's a natural law of physics that our country has to expand again, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're, you're, you're dealing with that issue, the fact that they g- genuinely believe that there is a portion of the world they are destined to control and that um, it was merely a temporary uh, pause button on their empire. Right. Um, secondly, more importantly, yes, um, if you don't stop the Russia and Ukraine, it sends a signal that they can also salami slice parts of Finland, Estonia, mm-hmm. 
uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland even, right? So now it's like you've now condoned a salami slicing of, of neighbors, which again is a really bad thing because we kind of already were de facto condoning it from a Western perspective after the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Thirdly, most importantly, uh, is if you do let this, you know, it, it's either, you know, it comes to a stalemate in Ukraine and, and Russia gets to keep whatever 10, 20% of Ukraine. It then also signals to China going, okay, we think we can get away with also salami slicing part of Taiwan, probably the part that has all the semiconductor foundries, mm. because mm. although Taiwan produces 60% of the world's chips. So if we get control of that, the world will be left with a, a fait accompli of like, well, we have to accept China having a chunk of Taiwan that has all the semiconductors, because if we oppose them or try to sanction them, now the cost of anything with the with the computer chip in it is now going to double, triple, or quadruple in cost. And I know my voters in Brussels or Berlin or Washington uh, won't. All my constituents not like the fact that now their iPhone costs two, three thousand dollars, or a laptop now costs five thousand mm. dollars. Um, and broadly speaking, from like uh, I guess like my fourth point on this to wrap it up is, um, if we truly believe that the international system is backed by the West and the U.S more broadly in terms of democracy, human rights, uh, and values and things like that, then this is, this is an attack on our way of life. We have to decide, are we worth, is it worth opposing these authoritarian systems and values that long-term, if we allow them to continue attacking the, our way of life, it is a, a threat to us, our kids and our grandkids in a way that I don't think we've again, communicated to average voters in the west no. and if we don't do that you don't have that conversation again it's a tough conversation saying this is going to be a long fight it is cold war 2.0 the only difference is the russia and china are not directly targeting and attacking us they are doing it on the margins so that over time they get the gains they want without provoking a a, a major response from western capitals that's it that's it can you it's be the thing. campaign face of this and go and yeah, exactly. We got to get you promoting those values. You. Oh no, I mean, I think we've lost hmm. in the past, right? It hasn't been important to talk about those values. Uh, we've forgotten about how to sp talk about them and the respect that we should have, because it means our lives, right? It means our lifestyles and our countries. But a lot of, I mean, you talk to a lot of people, and this is not something that's not how they, they think no that's not how they think so we you know this is great we should be promoting that um that as well um frankie well on your wanna... time off frankie you're going to be uh running around us with me yes. explaining yeah, of course, of course. even explaining if you don't know where is. ukraine is this is why it matters yeah um so, thank you so much for joining yeah. us yeah thank you all um, appreciate it and as a reminder to everybody, Frankie's book is all the new battle space. And that's exactly what we talked about throughout this whole okay episode. So thank you, Frankie. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hi. Bye. Hi, everybody. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help us with our independent work, please subscribe to Kremlin File on Substack or on YouTube. Kremlin File is hosted by Olga Lautman. And me, Monique Camarra. The production team is headed by Oreste Camarra. And the theme music is composed by Oreste Camarra. 
So please don't forget to visit our Substack for links to our socials and write to us with questions and comments we'll be addressing during our weekly episodes. So thank you for listening to Kremlin Files.